Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, you are God, and there is none else. We have come this morning with the intentions of worshiping you, and we know that we can only do that through your Spirit, and we know that we can only do that in accordance with truth. So continue to help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for your people that are here. Thank you for bringing those who are well physically and those who are not well physically. It's already mentioned that our sister Lynn is here. Also Anne is here. Those that are struggling with physical difficulties that are here, we pray that you'd bless them and strengthen them. We also pray for those that can't be here that you'd be at work in their lives. Help us this morning to respond rightly to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Picture. Picture if you were in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, and you were one of those lining the streets as Jesus entered in to the city. We know what the scene looked like. There were people throwing their clothes in the streets. People cutting down branches, palm branches, a symbol of victory. Throwing them in the streets. There's Jesus coming in, and there's this loud proclamation from the masses. And it was a, it was a proclamation of approval. It says this, you're in Colossians, stay there. It says this, you're familiar with this passage in Mark 11. Hosanna! Oh, save us. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! Salvation in the highest. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, there is this resounding approval of his kingship. There was a recognition that he is the one that they'd been waiting for. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He comes in and there's this approval, and yet we know. A few short days later, some of these same people crying out again. But their cry is different this time. Crucify him. Crucify him. And we also know that some of those that spoke those words, crucify him, crucify him, also likely later came to call him Lord. You know what that means? People change. And opinions change. Allegiances change. People are fickle. We're weak. We are inconsistent, which is why it's really good that we have a God who is not weak, who is not fickle, who is not inconsistent. The one who we worship is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, we may change, he changes not. So today, as we consider 
the Word of God in the book of Colossians. We want to talk about the fact that Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. We've been working our way slowly through this section of Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And we already read the section, but we're going to read a portion of it again as we recapture this section that we are calling, This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Jesus is all of this. Jesus, we know, is the image of the invisible God in verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. And by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Last week, when we were looking at verses 15, 16, and 17, we noted this. Jesus is Lord over creation. Jesus is Lord over creation. Because He created it. It came from Him. It was created through Him. And it is all for Him. He is Lord over creation. As we approach verses 18, 19, and 20, what we want to note this morning is that Jesus is Lord over the church. Jesus is Lord over the church. In verse 18, it starts this way. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. Now, if you think about a head, there are several ways you can think about it. Now, there's a river head. Ever been to one of those? That's where the river begins. It's the source of the river. So there's this river head. Out of this river head flows the river. From the head comes the river. Without the head, there is no river. So we can look at it like that. You can also think about it in the way that it's probably more likely used in this sense, and that is the head of a body. And you've got, well, can you picture one? Well, you're, you're standing there looking at me with your head, And you're looking at me, and I have one, a head. If I didn't have a head, it would be strange that I were talking to you. Yes? Without a head, there is no life. You cannot exist without a head. There's this mythical character, the headless horseman. I'm, I'm sorry to do this to you, but it's not real. I know you thought before you came today that the headless horseman was real, but he's not. Without a head, there is no existence. Without a head, there's no thought. There's no sight. There's no hearing. There's no smelling. There's no talking. 
So Jesus, as, as our head, he certainly is the source of our life, and we're going to come back to that because that is pictured elsewhere in this passage. Jesus, as our head, is the one who gives us our direction, our guidance. His will should be our will because he's our head. He's the one that gives us insight. So for the church, Jesus is our head, and as our head, he sets the course. He establishes the agenda. Our greatest aim should be his greatest aim. You know, an interesting statement, and I probably won't quote it correctly because I didn't write it down, and I don't remember things that great unless it's a Bible verse. But I believe it was Martin Luther who said, if you are not waging war at the same place that the rest of the world is waging war, you are useless. And I take a little bit of umbrage with that statement because the world is not knowingly engaged in warfare against the gospel, and that is our war. War? War with the gospel? Well, what I mean by war with the gospel is showing people that God loves them and showing people that Jesus died for them, that they might have life. Does that sound like a war to you? Not really. We're bringing to them the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. The world's not knowingly waging war against it. And so there are all kinds of other things that the world wages war against, social agendas and all these kinds of things. And if, if that becomes our focus, where did the gospel go? So let's, let's make Jesus' aim our aim. And Jesus' aim, remember, in the book of Mark, all the people are looking for you. Well, we're going to go on to the next villages also to preach there, because it's for this purpose I came forth. To do what? To preach. To tell people. To give people the good news that Jesus' death burial and resurrection is sufficient for their life in Christ forever. It's a good message. This is where he wages war. This is where we wage war. And what I, again, talking about not, not a warfare, we're not fighting against people, we're fighting for them. We're fighting for them. Jesus set a great agenda for us and a great pattern You'll remember when Jesus was on earth, he said, I have come to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is what our head did. I have come to fulfill the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is what our head did with his life. What should the body do with ours? I think... I think that we should think and act likewise. I have come to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He's our head, Jesus Christ. His work should be our work. We have this, we can get lost in the fray of all kinds of good things to do. Good is not the agenda. Right is the agenda. The right thing. The right thing is to continue to show people who Jesus is. In our words and in our deeds. That Christ would be seen. 
that Christ would be seen as sufficient for a life and an eternal life and this life. Jesus is sufficient for these things, and that is the message we preach. It says, He's the head of the body, He's the head of the church. It says, Who is the beginning? This is the next little descriptor of Jesus. Who is the beginning? Well, again, this is that concept of of source. There is no church without him. No Jesus, no church. Make sense? You might remember that Jesus said, You are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not labor, uh, will, will not, thank you, prevail against it. On this rock. And the apostles picked up on that. Now they were filled with the Spirit. They were in, inspired by the Spirit. But they called Jesus the chief cornerstone. Without that chief cornerstone, there's no foundation. Without that foundation, there's no church. He's the beginning. He's the beginning. He's the source of the church. Then it says, He's the firstborn from the dead. Does this mean He's the first one to, to be raised from the dead? Lazarus, anyone? (laughs) Didn't Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? And there were others. What does it mean he's the firstborn from the dead? Was he the first of this kind? Do you know, while Lazarus was raised from the dead, poor guy died a second time. How many people have that privilege? Not many. Not many. Jesus was the first one to be raised unto everlasting life. And Jesus told those that would listen to him that they could have that same benefit too. In John chapter 14 and verse 19, the Bible says this, Because I live, you will also live. Because of my living, because God has given me life, and and because I'm the one who grants life, because I have life, you also will have life. We have the life of Christ, not just the life that was given to us when mommy and daddy conceived us and we came out of the womb and, and we took our first breath and We subsequently cried and did all the things that we did. That's just one kind of life, and it's a temporal life. We're talking about life eternal. This is why the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20 that, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become what? What does it say? What kind of first fruits? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first one that has come back to life never to die again. This, this is Jesus. He's the first one. And His death, burial, and resurrection ensure the resurrection unto eternal life for everyone who trusts in Him. Please tell me inside of your soul there was a hallelujah there. Because He lives, I live. How about you? Do you live? Do you live? It's because he's the firstborn from the dead. This, this is Jesus. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in all things, he might have the preeminence. Preeminence is the first place. 
The position of priority. The position of honor. That when we think, what's the right thing to do? We think, what would Christ have me to do? This is putting Him in a position of preeminence. His will, His way, His desire, His path. That's what we need. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. In everything, He ought to have, and He should have, He does have the preeminence. Take a look with me at the book of Ephesians just for a moment. Now our illustrious song leader did open us up with this passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 1. As the resurrected Savior, Jesus ascended into heaven and He is seated at the right hand of God the Father as the sovereign ruler. The sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. Further, He is the sovereign ruler of the church. He is our He is my sovereign ruler. Not just the church at large, though that's true. He's my sovereign ruler. I am his subject. I am in his kingdom. This is our privilege. We're in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to cut even more into the context than Brian did. And we're going to start at verse 19. It says, and what is the exceeding, he wants us to know what is the exceeding greatness of God the Father's power toward us. When it says toward us, it means for our benefit. What is the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Where is he seated? In heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and has given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness. We are the fullness. We have been filled to brimming, to the brim. Filled to the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. We're talking about Jesus. He's Lord over creation. That was last week. And this week, we're talking about Jesus being Lord over all. Right now, talking about Him being Lord over the church. And for most of us, we're like, Yes! I like it. But for the off chance that maybe that's not your... Response, I want to give you an opportunity to feel like that. What kind of sovereign is he? What kind of sovereign? What kind of master is he? When we think of master slave relations, we start to get a very negative vibe, don't we? Negative picture in our minds? I think we do. I think it's very natural when we think master slave, we start to get this icky, icky feeling. But I want to tell, I want to talk for a couple of moments about what kind of a master he is. When you think about this master, I want you to think about him as the defender. The Bible says he's our advocate. Our advocate. When Satan accuses us, listen, listen. When Satan accuses us, 
Jesus presents our legal defense. You know what he says? The record is spotless. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Have you come to know that there is no other way, no other truth, and no other life, that you can't get to the Father except through Jesus? If you've come to know Jesus as your Savior, when Satan accuses you, and he does night and day, and your advocate, your master, is your advocate, he comes to your defense, and he says, your record is spotless, flawless, perfect righteousness is on your account. This is the glory of justification. This is the glory of what God has done in saving us because my record is expunged and Jesus' record is placed on my account. I have a perfect record. It's not because I'm a really cool guy. It's because Jesus is the best kind of master. He's our defender. He's not only our defender, he is our guardian. With this, we get the the impression, the understanding of the term high priest. High priest. When Satan tries to deceive us, and he does, Jesus prays for us. Now, I don't know if you remember, if you ask anything in my name, I'll hear you, and you'll have the petition. When Jesus prays, does the Father hear him? Is it a prayer in accordance with the will of God? Is it answered in the positive? Yes. This this Jesus is your guardian. He's your master, but he's your guardian. And the Bible says this in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7 and verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I want you to think about this. You ever feel like, man, I just can't be saved. I'm just not good enough. You ever feel that way? If you don't, there might be something wrong with you. But you know better. Because you know that your salvation isn't based upon you and your actions. It's based upon Christ and His actions and His faithfulness. And so, when you're in the midst of of thinking lowly of yourself, which may happen more frequently than you would like, recognize that Jesus is able to save you to the uttermost because you have come to God through Him and that Jesus in that moment is alive making intercession for you. Now, Peter had this problem. Peter didn't know he had this problem, (laughs) but Peter had this problem. In the course of Jesus and Peter, we know the we know the back and forth and the good and the bad and all the stuff that goes with us. And, and when we look at Peter, we say, yeah, there I am. <laughs> uh, I struggle like Peter does. And, and we think about Peter, and it's getting close to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And Jesus had a message for Peter. He said this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, 
that he might sift you like wheat. You know, when you're sifting wheat, you're, you're dividing all the pieces so that the, the, just the, the product that you need is there and the rest of the stuff goes away. He wanted to sift you like wheat. He wanted to separate you from your faith. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Listen carefully to the, to the words that Jesus uses next. And when you have turned again. Was Jesus wondering whether his prayer would be effective? He says, this is what Satan is going to do. He's going to try to sift you from your faith. I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And guess what? It's not going to fail. When you are returned, after you deny me, when you return, strengthen your brethren. And I believe that you'll see in Peter's writings that he took this and applied it to those that would read from him. Because he knew how vitally important it was. When Satan tries to deceive you, remember this. Your master is praying for you. This is the kind of master that we have. This is Jesus. He's a a defender and he's a guardian. Thirdly, he's a provider. He is a provider. Listen carefully, please. While we are, we are tasked beyond our ability. We are commissioned beyond our ability. We are told to do things beyond our ability. While we're tasked beyond our ability, we have been given everything we need to accomplish God's will. You want to know from whom? Your master, the head of the church. I'll remind you again of our commission. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says this to his disciples. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority, every bit of it, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Listen carefully. This is what is the greatness of the Great Commission. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is what Jesus has promised. That not only have we, He has all the authority, and because of that authority we should go with the Gospel, He says, when you go, you do not go alone. I go with you. That's called grace. That's called grace. I will do this in you. I will produce a gospel testimony in you if you let me. I'm with you forever. The Bible says this in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. A very familiar passage. I have it in the ESV, so you can get it, maybe a little, little difference on it to, to kind of startle you or, or to, to get your mind thinking through the passage that's so familiar. It says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So I don't want to exhaust that beautiful passage. I just want you to see this. God saved us. The Spirit regenerated us. And then God gave us this gift of the Spirit through Jesus. You know what he's saying here is this. You have a task to do, but you've been infused with power from on high. You've been infused with the person of the Holy Spirit who came through Jesus Christ. This is what he's done. Our master doesn't just demand. Our master does give us correctives. He does give us direction. He tells us this is what to do. Let me do it through you. I will do it by the power of my spirit whom I've placed in you. Friends, that's called grace. Which is very similar to what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where where Paul is uh, so exalted uh, in his own mind. He's, he's, He's exhilarated because of the vision that he had seen of glory. And it says, unless I should be exalted above measure... Uh, buffeted. Buffeted. What a bad word. A messenger of Satan was sent unto me to buffet me. And I asked the Lord three times, God, remove it. Please remove it. I, I can't bear this any longer. And the provider said this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. This is what the provider master has done. See, when, when we talk about Jesus being Lord over the church, or the sovereign ruler over the church, or the master of the church, we're not talking about a master that, that is, is trying to suck every last bit out of you so that he can extract what he needs. Can I remind you? He spoke the world into existence. He doesn't need anything. Did you know that? Say, oh, I'm going to do God a favor. I'm going to go and do this thing. Oh, really? What would he do if you didn't do it? Oh, now what will I do? No, this is not our master. Our master is limitless. He's fully content. Our master wants to defend us and guard us and enable us to do his will. He wants to use us. But as as we've all heard, if you don't speak, he can use a donkey to do it. And quite appropriate, on Palm Sunday, if the people didn't cry out, the rocks would have cried out. So we've got a dumb animal or an inanimate object can do what it is we need to do. Because the vessel, the vessel is not the issue. And we spend so much time dealing with our vessel when we should be spending so much time with the God of that vessel. Yes, we want to just surrender ourselves to him because he is Lord of all. Jesus is a good master. 
No. Jesus is a great master. No, not good enough. Jesus is the best master. This is Jesus. He's Lord of creation. And he's Lord over the church. Now, as we consider for a few more moments, this Jesus that we love, I want for us to consider Jesus is Lord over the new creation. Jesus is Lord over the new creation. We're in Colossians. Actually, we're not, but you can turn there. It's not that far. Turn to the right. Colossians chapter 1. You follow along with me as I read verses 19 and 20. It says, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Before we dive into this, I want to just talk with you as as the people that I love and care about. We have another verse before us who tells us who Jesus is. Now, I refer to our Savior and Lord by His singular name quite a bit. Jesus. There's a reason I don't feel that that's too casual. I grew up in a, in a church where I, it was always the Lord Jesus Christ, because that is who He is. He is the Lord Master, Jesus Savior, Christ, Anointed One, or Messiah. So I understand that. I love the, the title, the Lord Jesus Christ, but I also love His personal name, Jesus. And it is not inappropriate or too casual to call Him Jesus, because Paul told us in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus received the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Friends, the name Jesus is enough. I'm not saying it's the only name. I'm just telling you that Jesus is an appropriate title because it's the personal name for the one who died on a cross for our sin. Jesus. But referring to Jesus with this singular name does not take away who he is in his fullness. In his fullness, Jesus is fully Come on. He's fully God. Unequivocally. He is co-equal. He is co-existent. He is co-eternal. Jesus was, is, and always will be. This is Jesus. Take a look at the next chapter. Take a look at chapter 2, just for a moment, as we just meditate on this for a moment. Colossians 2 and verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In bodily form, we have personified for us everything that is the Godhead. Which is why when it says in John chapter 1, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the fact that He's the the image of the invisible God, that Jesus is the declaration of the Father. Everything that God is, Jesus is. 
There is nothing true about the Father that is not true about Jesus. He is God in every way. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is long-suffering. He is just. He is righteous. He is kind. He is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is all of that because he's God. Jesus is God. And Jesus didn't shy away from his deity. We're not going to turn there. But in John 14, he talks about the fact that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In John chapter 10, in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. You'll remember in the book of Genesis, it says that let us make man in our image. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, tell all of Israel. All of Israel needs to know this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word there means unity. Just like a husband shall leave his father and mother and shall be cleaved unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. It's unity. They're, they're, they're one in their union forever. There's a uniting. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one. This is who they are. Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. So Jesus, the God-man, listen carefully, is the ultimate Prince of Peace. He is the ultimate Prince of Peace. And that's what we see in verse 20. Look at what it says. It says, And by Him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. God was the Father was pleased that all the fullness should dwell in Jesus, and God the Father was pleased that by Jesus everything will be reconciled. He will reconcile all things to himself. He will reconcile all things to himself. Let me ask you a question. Is this a statement of universal salvation? Well, he said he'll reconcile all things to himself. Side note, isn't it interesting that he says he'll reconcile all things to himself? This is another statement of his deity, because he's reconciling all things to God. Okay, with that being said, let's think through this. He interestingly says, after talking about reconciling all things to himself, he says, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So we're talking about about. The creation, we're talking about parts of the creation. We're talking about angels, we're talking about humans. We're talking about everything that God created. He's going to reconcile all things to himself. Is this a statement of of universal salvation? Well, the answer to that, so you're not wondering if I've gone off the deep end, is no. No, it is not. Colossians 2 and verse 15 for a moment. Colossians 2.15 Later on, he would debunk that, that, own, that thinking, if, if that's what he was getting at here. It says in verse 15, Having disarmed principalities and powers, having made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. It's a very interesting thing. We can't get into all of it. But Jesus at the cross and at the resurrection, and in between the cross and the resurrection... 
somehow he's letting the hosts of demonic beings as well as the people uh, of Old Testament saints, he's letting them know the job is done, friends. Now, we don't know all the words that he spoke, but we understand this. Somewhere in between the cross and the resurrection, Jesus told everyone in the underworld that the job was done and the, those who were held captive were going to be led to heaven because Jesus had to be the first fruits, right? And then all of those Old Testament saints could be with God forever. And while all of this is going on, the, the, the enemy and his hosts are knowing, uh-oh, triumphing over them in it. It's very interesting. Now we have a couple of scripture passages to consider. It will be on the screen behind me. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16, the Bible says, For surely it is not angels that he, speaking of Jesus, helps. It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In other words, people, humans. In the book of Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, the Bible says this, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Why are we talking about this? Because we're talking about reconciling all things to God and and the, the question of universal salvation comes in. We can't ignore passages that give clarity to that subject. And that is, those angels who were made perfect, who decided against God, they fell away and followed Satan instead of God, they are eternally separated from God. They are eternally judged. They will not be redeemed. There is this statement here in Colossians chapter 1 is more than a statement about universal salvation. It's more of a statement that speaks to how all things will be resolved in God's kingdom into a state of peace. Every aspect, listen carefully, every aspect of God's kingdom will be perfect. Can I have you go to a couple passages with me? We're going to have some fun. Okay, we're looking at God's redemption, God's work through Jesus of making everything new and right and perfect. First, Romans chapter 8, and if you can also, talented as you are, turn to Revelation 21. So you're going left and right from Colossians. Romans 8 and Revelation 21. So, all things, whether on earth or in heaven... The earth, right now, it's perfect, isn't it? <laughs> Just right. There's no diseases. You don't deal with weeds. Some of us in our lawn. You don't deal with thorns. Any problems with the creation? Well, the Bible says there's some problems with the creation. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. What's the big idea here? 
The big idea in Romans 8, in this little subsection, is this. While the earth and the world and the universe is not perfect right now, and it wants to be, it will one day be made perfect. Peace. Ultimate peace. Ultimate reconciliation. Ultimate restoration. This is what Jesus does. Take a look at Revelation 21 now. Now again, we're we're answering this question. When Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, it's not saying everything and everyone is all going to be saved. Don't, Don't worry about it. Everyone gets saved in the end. All dogs go to heaven. It's not what it says. Do I wish that that were the case? I guess personally I would say yes. I wish that that were the case. But it's not. It's not the way it is. So we're trying to understand it properly. And the, and the understanding I'm trying to help you to, to come to is that when at the end, when everything is squared away, everything that's left in God's kingdom, everything is perfect. So we've got Revelation 21. Take a look, starting in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Wouldn't it be so wonderful if that were the end of the story? But verse 8 is there. And it reads, But the cowardly unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Look at chapter 22 and verse 14. In verse 14, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. May I have your crystal clear attention. Those who are a part of God's eternal kingdom have a perfect record. Does anyone around here know how to get a perfect record? Does anyone around here know where that perfect record comes from? Hmm. I wonder 
if every time we're together, we're talking about how we can obtain that perfect record that comes from God and not from us. See, this is the glory of justification. Justification comes through faith in Christ. Justification is a complete and eternal removal of our sin and all of its traces. The record is expunged. And the other side of justification is that God puts on our account a new record and I will tell you that it does not include lying and it does not include sexual immorality or covetous or any such thing. You see, this is the glory of justification. It provides for us the perfect record that God demands. God is a loving God. But it's not, we don't get saved just because God loves. Some would want to preach it that way. Oh, God is love. Everyone's okay. Jesus died. It's a wonderful world. But that's not the Bible. The Bible says, we sinned. Christ died that he might bear the weight of that sin. But there's a connection point between my sin's removal, the addition of righteousness, and this perfect record. It's called faith in Christ. This is how we obtain that perfect record. It is a spotless record, and it is an eternal record. There will not be one sinner in heaven. And I wonder, if, if you're confused right now, it's because you don't understand the Bible's gospel message. And if you're saying, yeah, I'm not going to be a sinner in heaven, you understand what the gospel has done for you. It has removed from your record forever sin. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Those who are part of God's kingdom will not only have a record of perfection, but they will be completely changed. This corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. Who does this? Anyone know? Oh, you know. You know the answer. The change comes through Jesus. How does He make these changes? Colossians 1.20 answers that question for us. Through the blood of His cross. This, friends, is the reason we have justification. It's because Jesus bled out for me. He bled out for me. And I'm going to have life. The reason my sin is expunged and righteousness is imputed is because Jesus shed his blood that I might have life. And God, by his grace, opened my eyes that I might behold the beauty of Jesus and trust him. This is Jesus. We've been talking about Jesus. Well, we're going to keep talking about Jesus every day we have the opportunity. But we've been talking over these last few weeks from Colossians 1 15 through 20, 
about Jesus. We've been saying, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. And from that passage, this is what we note about Jesus. Jesus is the manifestation of the invisible God. Jesus is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Because Jesus is the creator of the universe. Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. Jesus is the faithful head of the church. Jesus is the source of the church. Jesus ensures the eternal life of the church. Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is the restorer of peace and perfection to the earth. Jesus is the end goal of creation. This is Jesus. There is no one like him. And friends, he can be your master today. Let's pray. Father, you are so kind to us. And we exalt your name together. We come here, we've come, and we come as those who want to love you, and we want to love you more. And we come as people in need. And we come as people who have experienced, many of us, the joy of knowing Jesus as our Savior, you as our Father, the Spirit as our Comforter, the Word as our glorious revelation of you, the church as our home, the world as a place that we might share Christ. Help us that we would live in harmony with our Master. That in all things He might have the preeminence in this church and in our lives. We need you, Father. We need you to do this by your Spirit. We, we are weak, but you are strong. Where our will is weak, give us the will. Where our arms are weak, give us the strength. Where our wisdom is shallow, fill us with your wisdom. We know that you've given us everything we need to fulfill your will. We want to exalt our head, Jesus. Help us to do so here and now and throughout the week and throughout this year. Father, we pray for anyone here that's never trusted Jesus as their Savior, that they don't know this kind master that we serve, your Son, whom you sent willingly that he might bear our sin. We pray that they would they would be uncomfortable to not 
trust him. We pray that they would be moved to experience the joy and rejoicing of Jesus because they'll know that their sins are removed forever and their their record is one of righteousness and they'll spend eternity with you and be part of this peaceful kingdom of the Prince of Peace. Work in your people. Work in this church. Work as we sing for your glory. In Jesus' glorious, exalted name, amen.